Well, good morning. It's a real pleasure to be with you here this morning. My name is Ted DiBiase. If you're a wrestling fan, you may have remembered the Million Dollar Man. How many in this room would say you remember that guy? Yeah! <laughs> well, then you would probably remember this. <laughs> Everybody's got a price for the Million Dollar Man. I just got to get that out of my system once a day, you know. Seriously, though, the last place I ever thought I'd be, the last thing I ever thought I'd be doing with my life is what I have done for the last 19 years. I've traveled the United States and Canada and literally around the world preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's that I came to a place in time in my life where I realized that God had a plan for my life. And it, it wasn't until I submitted to his plan that my life has had the joy that I've had now. One of the questions I'm often asked having been a wrestler is why? Of all the things I could have possibly chosen to do in life, why would I choose such an odd occupation? Let's face it, folks, pro wrestling is not a normal job, is it? No. What do you do for a living, Ted? Well, I run around in spandex and I hit people in the head with chairs. What do you do? It's just not a normal job. But the answer to that question in a word was dad. I was very fortunate to have been raised by a loving stepfather who came into my life when I was five years old. My biological parents divorced when I was two. And when I was five years old, my mother remarried Mike DiBiase. DiBiase is an Italian name. And my, my stepfather, and we're my dad, everybody says, well, he's your stepdad. No, he's the dad that raised me. He's the, he, and it's his name I carry to this day. But he was the son of Italian immigrants, born and raised in Omaha, Nebraska, in a very poor ethnic neighborhood. He's also the kid that came out of that poor ethnic neighborhood. And in 1946, wrestling for the Navy, won the AAU National Heavyweight Wrestling title. Then went on to the University of Nebraska, where he later eight times, four years in wrestling, four in football. Three years in a row, he was a conference heavyweight wrestling champion. Storied career. I didn't know any of those things about my dad from him. He's never talked about it, never bragged about it. But what my dad did say to me was, when I was very young was he said, son, he said, he said, don't follow the crowd. Don't do what everybody else is doing. That's easy. It takes no courage to do that. He said, what takes courage is to stand up and cut your own path in life. Be a real man, you know. Be the head, not the tail. Be a leader, not a follower. But be led by Christ. The other thing that my dad did was he took me to church. Now, being Italian, like most Italians, my father was raised Roman Catholic. So in my early life, I was the award-winning altar boy. I was the kid who showed up at the 6 o'clock mass when there was four feet of snow on the ground in Omaha, and there was nobody at the 6 o'clock mass but me and the priest, and he lived there. <laughs> yeah, he didn't have to trudge through the snow to get there. But I took it very seriously. I, I look back at it now, and I call it a childlike faith. Yeah, there's, I have a lot of issues with Catholicism, but my heart was true. And at the end of the day, if you're a follower of Christ, you're going to be judged by your heart. Jesus said, you'll recognize the tree by the fruit. He said, a good tree can't bear bad fruit, and a bad tree can't bear good fruit. And every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you'll recognize them. So wanting to be so much like my dad, I wanted to do the things he did. I wanted to wrestle and play football. And all those things were going along fairly well for me until I was 15. When I was 15 years old, my dad had a heart attack during a match in Lubbock, Texas, and died. He was 45 years old. Uh, and my whole world changed that day. This man who was so, such an inspiration to me, someone who I totally looked up to and wanted to emulate, was now gone. My hero. I then had to move back to a very small town much like your small town. Wilcox, Arizona is down in the southeast corner of the state and has three traffic lights. Interstate 10 goes around it. And my grandparents live there, my mother's parents. My grandmother ran a truck stop. So I knew Wilcox because I lived in Wilcox from the ages of two to five. I didn't remember much about it, but I, I knew it. And we would go and visit my grandmother. So I was not unfamiliar with the town. But 
Now you see, I had started to do well in athletics, and I had these big dreams, dreams of college and professional football and wrestling. And I'm looking around this little town going, can my dreams come true here? And my peers, the kids I was now going to school with, when they found out that I had such lofty goals and dreams, they just thought I was out of my mind. You see, if you were cool in Wilcox, then you, on Friday and Saturday night, you went out in the desert and built a big bonfire, had a party, got drunk, got high, and had a good old time. But that's not what I did. See, I remembered what my dad said. Because all of the kids in his neighborhoods did the same thing to him when he voiced what he was going to do or wanted to do. And he was the one that came out of poverty in an ethnic neighborhood and excelled. The other thing he told me was he, sent, he said, son, he says, you can be anything you want to be if you're willing to pay the price. If you're willing to work hard, you can be whatever you want to be. And young people, I want you to know something. There is nothing I've ever had in my life that's, that's worth anything that came easy or was free. Nothing's free. Because if it's handed you on a silver platter, you don't care about it because you don't have any sweat equity in it. And I found that out when I suggested to my dad one day an allowance. <laughs> oh my gosh, money for nothing. And he looked at me and if looks could kill, he said, son, he says, if you want money, you're gonna work. We were in Texas at the time and there was a golf course about two blocks away. He said, you go caddy at that golf course this summer. And he says, at the end of the summer, I'll match whatever you saved and we'll buy you a new bike. Now, between the golf course and, and where we lived, the apartments we were in, there was a 7-Eleven and McDonald's. He said, now, if you want to stop and get a, an Icy, great, your money. You want to get a burger? Great, your money. Anything in this house is free. He was teaching me to prioritize. At the end of the summer, my dad did exactly what he said he would do. He matched, he actually more than matched my money. And I had the first brand new bicycle I ever owned. Now, here's the first two things I bought for that bike padlock and a chain in an oil can. I was going to make sure that, that that chain was oiled properly and I was going to make sure that it was locked up because every time I looked at that bike, I thought about how many times I walked that golf course. Nothing in life that's worth having is free. Well, everything's going along good until my dad is gone. And now I'm putting those principles that he taught me that the Bible teaches me. I'm putting those principles to work. The other horrible thing that happened was that my mother in her grief and her despair fell into alcoholism virtually overnight. I'd go home and hear my mother say things like, I wish I would die, I wish I were dead, I have nothing to live for anymore. And at the time I felt sorry for her. That hurt me. So if there was ever a kid that had the opportunity to get on the pity party and feel sorry for himself, it certainly was me. But I didn't. The two things that kept me straight were the principles that were taught to me by a father. And every child needs the admonition of a father. Those two things. And, and my relationship with God. On many of those weekends that the uh, kids were out in the desert getting drunk and getting high, I would go to the cemetery, the desert cemetery where my dad is buried. Part my grandmother's old rambler shine the lights on his grave. And I'd pace back and forth in front of that, gra that grave and pray and ask God to give me the strength and the skills that I needed to achieve the goals I'd set. And I'm here to tell you God's always faithful. I was the first kid to graduate from this little school in south Southern Arizona with a full scholarship to play Division I college football. I initially signed with the University of Arizona thought that was the only, would be the only offer I had, but then I ended up going to a place called West Texas State University. It now is called West Texas A&M. Back then they were, we, they were a Division I school in the Missouri Valley Conference. And I chose that school over Arizona because there was a very well-known wrestling family who lived in that area, the Funk family. Because I was smart enough to know that even though I was getting a scholarship to play football and it'll put me through college, I might not be fast enough for the NFL. And that turned out to be true. 
So, so far, so good. You know, if, if this was the end of the story, great job, Ted. You, you, stuck, you stuck to your goals and your principles and God showed up in a big way and pat on the back. But it's not the end of the story. You see, folks, when I got to college, I was 18 years old. And after doing things right and having this success, two things crept into my life. And those two things then pretty much controlled me for the next 20 years. My pride and my ego. E-G-O, ego. Your ego will always edge God out. The Bible clearly says pride goeth before the fall. I'm here to testify to that. I started doing things in college I wouldn't do in high school. Going out and having a beer with the boys after all. I'm a young adult now. Young adult, 18 years old. Ah. After all, the Bible doesn't say you can't have a beer. It says drunkenness is a sin. And I reasoned I could have a couple of beers and not get drunk. Well, we all know where that leads. Waking up on a Sunday morning with a hangover. Unfortunately, Friday and Saturday night always go before Sunday. So pretty soon I'm not going to church anymore. But I'm becoming cool. By the time I was 26 years old, I had failed to complete college by one year. I had been married and divorced with a son. But by now I was a professional wrestler. And folks, I believe what God said to Ted was, okay, son, I'm going to let you have what you want. You go climb that material ladder of success. You go become that big famous wrestler you want to be. Get all that stuff and find out what life is like there without me. And somewhere down the road, you and I are going to have another conversation about this. How many parents in the room of teenagers now or at some point? Isn't it amazing how our children become teenagers and all of a sudden they think we're stupid and clueless. They just, we're not hip, we're not cool. You got a smartphone, it's smarter than you. What do you mean you don't know what Facebook is? Don't you want to grab them and shake them? Look, you little moron. <laughs> I only have 30 years of life experience on you. You see, what our children don't understand is we've already been down the road. We know what's coming and we give them rules and we give them boundaries because we love them and we're trying to protect them. Well, let's take that up one notch. Our heavenly father, he says, I'm only the God of the universe and I've only been around for eternity. And I've given you a standard to live by too. His word, the Bible. If we'll just follow the rule book, we will have life as Jesus said and have it more abundantly. But we've all been teenagers. Some teenagers in the room right now. Unfortunately, some teenagers never grow up. It took this one until he was 38 years old to fully come to realize what it really means to be a Christian and to walk in that relationship. You see, folks, genuine Christianity is not a religion. It's relationship. And if you're not walking in the intimacy of that relationship, you're practicing religion no matter where you hang your hat. Religion will take you straight to hell. Because it's just about ritual. And I have found finally that the difference between heaven and hell is about 18 inches. You see, because from the time I was very young, I have believed the gospel message. Yes, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He died on a cross. He rose from the dead. He sits at the right hand of the Father, and He will come again in glory to judge the world and take home those who have placed their trust and hope in Him. But the difference between heaven and hell is moving it from here to here. You see, because when it gets in here, it has no choice but to come pouring out of your life. Again, it's not about performance. It's not about going on mission trips. It's not about doing all these good things. Oh, yes, we are called to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, and take care of widows and orphans. But the point I'm making is that you can do all of those things. You can still go to hell because you will be judged by the attitude of your heart. Why did you do it? Did you do it to bring recognition to yourself? Oh, boy, he, you know, he's on all the trips. You know, he's, you know. Are you doing it for your glory or for his? Are you doing it out of obligation? It's Sunday morning. 
gosh, Ted, that's a great message, but well, it's not quite football season, but it's almost here, right? When you show up on Sunday morning, are you one that keeps looking at your watch to see if the pastor's going to go a little bit too long for you because you're worried about getting to lunch or, or you need to be sitting in front of your big screen TV at noon because that's when kickoff comes? You see, if that's your attitude, you might as well have just stayed at home. Because coming to church don't do you any good if that's why you're there out of obligation. And it took me a long time to figure that out. So I'm beginning to grow in stature and recognition within the inner circles of the wrestling industry. In 1981, I went to Atlanta, Georgia to what was then called Georgia Championship Wrestling, which later became WCW World Championship Wrestling. And in Atlanta, I met a young lady, a Christian girl, Melanie. Melanie and I fell in love, and on New Year's Eve, the last day of 1981, we were married. And God had brought this beautiful Christian woman into my life. I didn't want to make any more mistakes. I didn't want to have any more children that I couldn't see except on weekends and special occasions. I wanted to do things right. It's funny how God starts coming back into the equation here. Melanie said to me, she said, okay, Ted, you know, you're Catholic and I'm a Baptist. Let's compromise and go to a non-denominational church, which are all Protestant. (laughs) Duh, football. But the point is, and I hate to say it this, but there's the truth. It's the first time I heard the gospel preached straight from the Bible. It's the first time in my life that I heard that my eternity hinged on a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and not all, not all these do's and don'ts. It's the first time in my life that I walked an aisle and stood at a platform like this one and said a prayer we call the sinner's prayer. I had an emotional experience that day. But folks, here's what I didn't do. Sometime between that Sunday and the next Sunday, I didn't get to the Christian bookstore and buy a Bible and dive in. Relationship. You see, when I look back at it from where I am now, I realize that I never said this, but what my actions were saying to God was, yes, Lord, I, I, believe, I believe the gospel message. And I want what you have to offer. But what I was telling God through my actions is I want it my way. I want to have all this stuff. Well, gang, it's either God's way or the highway. So God just kept letting me go. Well, in spite of me, God blessed Melanie and I with two beautiful children, our boys, Ted Jr. and Brett. God gave me back the son, my son Michael, from my first marriage. I got him back when he was 11 years old. Folks, I couldn't have been more blessed, and in reality, I couldn't have been less grateful because I was driven by pride and ego. So, in 1984, we came back to Mississippi where my parents, my my in-laws retired. And I moved to Clinton, Mississippi, just outside of Jackson. Joined Morrison Heights Baptist Church. Once again, Ted walks the aisle. Once again, Ted stands at the platform and says that prayer. Once again, Ted is baptized. And my pastor said to me, he said, Ted, he says, I want to encourage you. He said, God's planted a seed in your life. And he says, I want you to nurture the seed. I want to encourage you to get in a good group of, uh, of a few men that you know and that you trust that you can be accountable to. Because if there's no accountability in your life, it's only not a question of if you'll fail or fall, it's only a question of when it'll happen. And he encouraged me to get in the Word of God, get in the Bible. He suggested a couple of good devotionals for me to start with. He said, word, read the Word every day. Start your day and end your day. He says, know this, the devil will come quickly to pluck the seed God has planted in your life. You see, when we're walking in the world, the devil don't care about us. He's already got us. 
But when you scream out, Jesus, now you got his attention. Now he will come quickly. And he said, Ted, he will attack you at your weakest point. Well, gang, I want you to know within a month of this rededication of my life, so to speak, I got the biggest break of my wrestling career. I'm now going to what was then the WWF, now called the WWE. And I'm sitting at the top of what they call Titan Tower, WWE headquarters in Stanford, Connecticut. And Vince, Vince McMahon, the owner, lays out this scenario for me. He says, Ted, he says, he says I've got a, a, an idea for a character. And he says, you're the guy. He had seen me wrestle as both what we call a good guy. And wrestling is called a baby face and a heel. Or a good guy and a bad guy. And I've been both. He says, you're very articulate, you carry yourself well. He says, this is it. This, this is, you can do this. And he said, the one thing everybody hates is someone who by virtue of their wealth thinks they're better than everybody. They bully people with their, they think they can buy anybody or anything. They bully people with their money. And I kind of started chuckling. I said, I can't stand guys like that myself. And he said, in an effort to market this character, we're going to try to make the public believe you're really rich. I said, how are you going to do that? He said, well, we're going to fly you everywhere first class. Sometimes that'll be private jets. There'll be limousine service for you everywhere you go every day. Airport to hotel, hotel to Coliseum, Coliseum to hotel, back to airport. You won't be staying at the Holiday Inn or the Red Roof Inn anymore. It's the Hilton, the Hyatt, and the Marriott. Only the first class hotels. Tough job, but somebody had to do it. I'm going, wow. Now, this is at a time when there were only two other guys in the wrestling industry that got that kind of treatment. One was Hulk Hogan and the other one was Andre the Giant. Well, folks, Andre the Giant was seven feet four, 450 pounds. He ain't going coach anyway. <laughs> he couldn't get in the coach seat. But my point is this, the devil came and attacked me at my weakest point, my pride. I had just been baptized a month earlier. Bible says Jesus was baptized. But when he came out of the water, the spirit drove me in the desert where he fasted and he prayed for 40 days and 40 nights and the devil came to tempt him. And when the devil tempted Jesus, Jesus rebuked him three times and he quoted scripture. Now understand the devil is talking to God. Because Jesus is both fully God and fully man. So Jesus didn't have to quote scripture. All he had to say was scram. Why did he quote scripture? To show you and me the way. That's where our power is. That's where our strength is. That's the way we fight him off. You see, Jesus was in total unity with the Father. Ted was not. The problem was I still wasn't letting go. We talk about committing our lives to Christ. Well, here's, here's what I got to tell you. Before you can commit your life to Christ, you have to surrender it first. And you're either all in or you're not in. There's no halfway. And I still didn't get it. Wrestling at this time was becoming the phenomenon. It, nobody ever envisioned that wrestling would go to the heights it's go, gone to then and even higher now. We began traveling the United States and the world, literally, like rock stars. Well, like rock stars. The next show, the next party, the next girl. By the grace of God, I was never addicted to any drug or, or alcohol. Did my share. But I had a real problem with women. Now I got a wife at home. I have a wife at home that absolutely trusts me. A wife who thinks I am totally devoted to her and God. A wife who is home raising our two boys and now accepting my son from her previous marriage, raising him as her own, loving him as her own. 
a wife who's home holding down the fort and doing everything else because I am on the road literally 21 days out of every month. God knows when the time is right to jerk the rug out from underneath you to get your attention. And for me, that happened in March of 1992. WrestleMania 8 took place in Indianapolis, Indiana at the Hoosier Dome. You know you're getting old when the buildings you used to wrestle in have been torn down and been replaced. <laughs> the Hoosier Dome is gone. So WrestleMania, for those of you who aren't wrestling fans, is like our Super Bowl. And I'll be honest with you, today it's getting to be just about as big. I found out recently that three quarters of the people that actually attend WrestleMania are from foreign countries. That's incredible. But this is the big night. So after the show, I go out on the town dressed in my tailor-made suit, big gold chain around my neck, and a pretty girl on each arm in my limousine, and I'm going to all the hot spots in Indianapolis because I am cool. Here's how you spell cool. F-O-O-L. Fool. Party till the wee hours of the morning. Had that limousine take me straight to the airport, caught a plane to Detroit, checked into the Marriott Hotel. Went to a payphone in the lobby to call home and check in because this was before we were all carrying these mini computers. Called home to check in with my wife. What a nice guy. What a jerk. What a selfish, self-centered jerk. But I had a big surprise on the other end of the phone that day. My wife that trusting, loving, caring, all-working wife who's totally devoted to God had discovered that her husband's committing adultery and not just once or twice. I don't want to talk about this on the phone. I'll be on the next plane home. She said, no, you won't. You don't live here anymore. Click. What do you think the first words out of my mouth were? Oh, God help me. Now you want to talk about hypocrisy, a hypocrite. Oh God, help me. Oh yes, Lord. You're the God I cried out to when I was 15 years old. My dad died and my mom started drinking and I would go to that desert cemetery and cry my eyes out. And you came to me there and you brought me comfort there. And you gave me, you gave me the desires of my heart. I got that scholarship and I went to college and I, I abandoned you. And in spite of that, you brought this wonderful Christian woman into my life. You blessed me with Melanie. You blessed us with two more children. You blessed me by giving me my son back from my first marriage. And then you blessed my career beyond my wildest hope or expectation. And what did I do? I abandoned you again. So folks, what did I deserve from God? Well, I deserve what the Bible says. We all deserve hell. And unfortunately, I don't think there's enough preachers preaching hell anymore. Folks, if there's a heaven, there's a hell. As a matter of fact, no one in the entire Bible spoke more about hell than Jesus. Here's a couple things he said. He said, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the path that leads to death. Many there enter through. He's talking about hell. But small is the gate and narrow the path that leads to life, and only a few find it. In another scripture, if your arm or your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Better to go through life blind and crippled than to burn in hell. Folks, it doesn't get any plainer than that. You know, and then there's some, and there may be some in this room that, you know, don't even believe there's a God. Well, I'm going to say to you the same thing that I, I said to, I had an encounter with, a, with an atheist. I had spoken somewhere, and I, I was getting a cup of coffee, and these two guys were having a debate, and one guy was a Christian. He turned around and recognized me. 
I think it was the first time I was ever recognized as being a Christian minister because he said he'd seen me on TBN. He said, can you help me out here, Ted? So I asked this guy, I said, can I ask you a couple questions? He said, sure. I said, have you ever read the Bible? He said, well, no, not really. He says, you know, maybe a little bit here, a little bit there. I said, but you've never taken the Bible and read it cover to cover and studied it. And he said, no. Okay. I said, here's what you just told me. What you're telling me is you don't believe in a God you've never spent 15 minutes looking for. And I told him, I said, let's just say for the sake of argument that you're right. When you die, you cease to exist. There's no God. If that's true, it won't matter. But for the same sake of argument, if I'm right and you're wrong, you're wrong for eternity, pal. Last time I checked, that's a long time to be wrong. And I'm sorry, but only a fool would blindly go through life believing there's no God only to find out he's wrong. And I can give you the name of a couple of guys that were extremely intelligent, that both were atheists and now are some of the greatest apologists for the faith. Josh McDowell, who I've had the pleasure of meeting. He set out to write a book, Evidence that Demands a Verdict. He was going to prove that although Jesus Christ was a historical person, he wasn't God. Well, he went and did all that study, and this book is about that thick, but he didn't get the verdict he thought he was going to get. The other guy's name is Lee Strobel. He was a, a, a journalist who covered uh, trial juries. And he said when he got married, he, he and his wife, even one, were Christians, but his wife gets saved. And, you know, he's uncomfortable with this, and, but he likes the difference he's seeing in his wife. And so he said he took it like, he says, I examined it like I would a trial. He said, I went all over the country and I spoke to the experts, both in favor and not, on both sides of the aisle. Today, he's one of the leading apologists for the faith because he too found out that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Well, the next person I called that day was the guy who's my closest friend. His name is Hal Santos. When I met Hal, he was a youth minister down there in the Baton Rouge area. And I met him in the gym where we worked out. He's a pretty big guy, and he walked up to me and introduced himself and said he'd seen me on regional television. He says, I just got one question for you, Ted. Do you know Jesus? He's a pretty bold guy. Let's start a conversation that started a relationship. And Hal Santos, who left there, and he, he, he went as a youth minister to a church in Fairview Heights, Illinois, which is right across the river from St. Louis. And when that pastor retired, he put Hal in there as the pastor, and Hal's been the pastor there ever since. But I look back now and I see that God placed Hal Santos in my life in January of 1982. Ten years later, March 1992, in my darkest desperate hour, I called Hal. Why? Relationship. You see, Hal stayed in contact with me. Periodically, he would call me and just talk to me. And anytime I was in the area, he would come by and see me. And here's what he didn't do. He didn't beat me up with religious questions. In other words, my relationship with, with him was not based on performance. So looking back, what I understand is that he demonstrated to me the unconditional love of Jesus Christ. Now my pastor at home is a great guy. I just didn't have that kind of relationship with my pastor at home. Nothing wrong with my pastor at home. But I had a relationship with Hal. Well, he arranged for my wife and I to fly to St. Louis. Picked me up at the airport and took me on the longest 30-minute ride of my life. My wife arrived ahead of me. Pastor Hal, what am I going to do? What do I say to Melanie? He said, Ted, Jesus said the truth would set you free. But he never said it'd be painless and he never said it'd be easy. He said, if you'll trust Jesus today, trust him like you did when you were 15 years old and your 
your dad died and your mom started drinking and you went out to that cemetery because he knew my story. He says, put that childlike faith back in him today and he'll forgive you, Ted, and he'll restore you. He said, you see, he never left you. You left him and all these years he's been trying to draw you back. When I called Hal, he said to me, Ted, I've been praying for you ever since we met. And my prayer has been this. He said, God, I know one day Ted's going to hit the wall. Let me be there for him. And then he said, you know, God will forgive you and God will restore you. He says, but the Bible also says that you reap what you sow. In other words, there's forgiveness and there's restoration. There's also consequences to the choices we make. He said, in your case, Ted, you might lose everything. Melanie has every right to divorce you. Take it all. And he says, I want to encourage you, though. If the worst happens, if you'll trust Jesus through the storm you're about to go through, you're going to come out of the storm on the other side with the peace in your life. The Bible says surpasses all understanding. And he said, remember, Ted, Jesus is both fully God and fully man. And being fully God, he's the God who put every star in the sky when you look up at night. He's the God who knew when you would take your first and last breath and everything you would do in between. And he's the God who, if you were the only man who ever lived, still would have stepped down off the throne of heaven and died on a cross just for you. And my friends, in a moment in time, as God allowed me to look at my life and look at where, where he had been there for me time and time again, and time and time again, I had trampled his blessing. And as I looked in the mirror that day, I saw a man, oh yeah, I'm famous, I'm, I'm a big shot, I'm, I've got all the worldly success I could have in my field. But I was a man who was willing to put at risk the love and devotion of a committed wife and the future, the stability and the well-being of his own children to stroke his ego. It doesn't get any uglier than that. But in that moment, when I tried to imagine a God that big who could love me that much, that in spite of all of that, he still loved me. Game changer. Scripture also tells us, until a man comes to the end of himself, you can't reason with him. See, I can sit here and preach to you all day long, but unless you've come to a place where you will hear it and receive it, I might as well preach to that wall. But I had finally hit the wall. I got out of that car and walked to the door of Pastor Hal's house. And as I walked that sidewalk, I prayed that prayer again. But this time it was different. I said, Jesus, you come on board the, the ship of Ted's life and take the helm. I don't even know where we're going, Lord, and I don't care anymore. No longer my will, your will. I don't ever want to come to this place. I don't ever want to feel this rotten again as long as I live. I'm probably going to lose my family, and that's what I deserve. Just give me the strength right now to be a man and tell the whole truth. It was the most gut-wrenching day of my life as well as my wife's. And as my wife left the room, she looked back at me through tears and she said, who are you, Ted? And where's the man I thought I married? In those few words, my wife was saying what I believe Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21. Because what she was saying was, this is the promise you made. This is who you said you were. But what I see is not the same. Well, Jesus in Matthew 7, 21 said this. Just because you say, Lord, Lord, doesn't mean you will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only he who does the will of the Father in heaven. So for many will come in that day. Many will come that day and say, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons and do many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice iniquity. In another translation, it's you evildoers. Church, who's he talking to? He's not talking to murderers, rapists, and drug dealers. He's talking to folks that go to church every week. 
They sit in the pew and listen to the sermon. Like I said earlier, maybe they're watching their watch. Getting a little bit too long here, pal. That verse literally scared hell out of me. It's not our performance, it's our heart. You may appear to be somebody, but is that who you really are? And that's who God judges. He judges us by the attitude of our heart. And I had finally come to a place of true brokenness. I had finally come to a place of surrender, realizing that if I had all, you know, Yes, I've been a celebrity, but I, you know, I'm not a huge star. I'm not a multimillionaire. But uh, did I travel the world in Learjets and limousines? Did I, I've had my likeness made into action figures. We don't call them dolls in wrestling. They're action figures. Matter of fact, you can still get my action figure. It's the classic series. <laughs> Video games. All that stuff. But what did it really mean? Empty. On that day, it meant nothing to me. Pastor Hal asked my wife and I to join him and his wife as they took their youth group to a big youth rally in Chicago, which is about 500 miles straight north on Interstate 55 from St. Louis. And I said, sure, we'll go. He handed me a little book. The author of the book was Edwin Lewis Cole. Ed Cole, to my estimation, was way ahead of his time in recognizing the anemic need for godly men in this country. This book was called Maximized Manhood. So I'm reading this book, and basically Dr. Cole says, genuine manhood is synonymous with Christ-likeness. In other words, the more Christ-like you are in character, the bigger man you are. See, I want all you athletes to know that, you know, your masculinity is not judged by the size of your your biceps or how much beer you can drink. As you get older, the size of your bank account, your car, your house, or any of that stuff. Your manhood is judged by the size of your character, the strength of your integrity. A man is only as good as his word, and his word is no good, he's worthless. This is what I'm reading. And a man, before he's the breadwinner in his home, is the priest. Gentlemen, it's not your wife's obligation to have your kids in church on Sunday. It's yours. And you and I as men will be held responsible before God for the spiritual well-being of our families. Can we save them? No. But can we do all we can in, in action and in word to lead them that way? That is our obligation. I can promise you kids won't always do what you tell them to, but ultimately they'll always do what they see you do. Well, as I'm reading this book, now understand, I'm at the top of my game now. It's like God whispered in my ear and it was like a, it was the slap in the face, it was the wake up call. He said, Ted, he says, you were a bigger man when you were 15 years old, when you cried out to me in that desert cemetery than you are right now. And right now you have everything you thought you ever wanted. What do you have that matters? What does all that stuff mean to you if you don't have a family to come home to? What does all that stuff mean to you if you're a liar and a deceiver and selfish and self-centered? that you have poor character and no integrity, what's it mean to you? Nothing. A big fat zero. I wanted to crawl under a rock. We got to St. Louis. I mean, we got to Chicago. Went into this big ballroom in a big hotel there. About 1,500 teenagers from all over the state of Illinois. What was I doing there? I confessed to God, my wife and pastor, how wasn't anybody else to confess to? No coincidences with God. 1,500 teenagers, at the time the demographic of the wrestling fan, teenagers. Back then I had highlighted blonde hair and a dark tan, I stuck out like a neon sign. 
And I walked in that room and I heard it ripple right through the room. There's the million dollar man. There's Ted DiBiase. What is he doing here? Good question. The speaker that day was a fellow who can really bring it. His name is Reggie Dabbs. And he got to that place, the invitation. And he said something to the effect, if you're tired of living a lie and you know what you need, you know it's Jesus, then I want to challenge you to get out of your chair and get up here right now. So with the million dollar man, a man who had been controlled and consumed by his pride and his ego and his image for 20 years, would I get out of my chair and in front of 1,500 people who recognized me as a television star and a tough guy to humble myself and go forward? You betcha. You see, folks, because God finally had me in a place where he wants all of us at some point in time in our life, willing to run to him with reckless abandon. I beat every kid in that room to the front of the building. Of course, that wasn't very hard because Pastor Hal had me strategically sitting on the front row. It's more like I lurched out of my chair and I literally just fell on my face face down. I didn't care then and I haven't cared since what anybody thinks. I remember as I laid there crying that I promised God that I would take care of my family because I was dead sure that I would, had lost them. But there was one more miracle in the house. My wife came to me And she said, Ted, I'm not going to make you a promise I can't keep. I don't know if I'm strong enough to do this. She said, but I serve a God of restoration, not divorce. And because I love God and I love Jesus and I want to be obedient, and that's the word she used, I want to be obedient to this voice in my heart that's for whatever reason is telling me to give you another chance, I'm going to try. I might not make it. She said, I'm not doing this for you. You don't deserve it. I'm doing this out of, out of obedience to God. She goes, I have forgiven you and I, I want to believe that you are sincere. I can't even explain to you how shocked I was that she would even consider it. But I looked at her and having just read that book, I said to her that day, I said, if you'll give me this chance, I'll become the man you thought you married. I will become the spiritual leader in my home. I will become a man of strong character and integrity. And God willing, one day I'll regain your trust and respect. That was March 1992. This next New Year's Eve, Melanie and I will celebrate our 36th wedding anniversary. And you know what, folks? God doesn't just fix things. Jesus said, I come that you have life and have it more abundantly. My relationship with my wife today is second to none. My wife is absolutely, unconditionally, my very best friend. I, <laughs> I still travel a lot. It's all ministry. And boy, I love FaceTime. Because I look at my wife every night and every morning as much as possible when I'm on the road. And we start and we end our day praying together. When I'm home, we start and end our day praying together because we are together. I'm amazed at the number of men that I know that have never prayed with their wives. As far as I'm concerned, there's nothing that you can do that's more intimate than pray with your wife. God doesn't just fix things. He makes them better if you trust him. The other thing that my wife says when we go out and we speak together is you can't hang on to bitterness and anger. She says, because when you hang on to bitterness and anger, it's like drinking poison and expecting somebody else to die. The only one suffering from it is you. And Jesus commands us. It's a command. Forgive as you've been forgiven. There's no parameters on that. You don't forgive because somebody deserves it. You don't forgive because somebody asks for it. You don't forgive. You simply forgive as you've been forgiven. Now, there's a lot of things that happen in life. There's a lot of things in our flesh that make that real hard. I spoke in the Bronx in New York and a young black man stood to his feet as I was sharing about forgiveness. 
tears rolling down his cheek and held his hand like this, just like to say, I'm in agreement with you. After everybody left the church, he came to me. And he said, I just wanted you to know, Ted, that today, finally, God has given me the strength to forgive. Finally, meaning I've heard this before and I know I've needed to do it, but I just happen to be the guy. That's why we keep watering it. And he said, but I need you to understand what I have forgiven. Now, I didn't, ex- I didn't see this coming, folks. He said, I'm from Rwanda. And in my country, there was what they called ethnic cleansing. And these militia came into my village and they came into my home and they held me and they forced me to watch them repeatedly rape my wife. And then after doing that, they forced me to watch them kill her and my son. And they killed them by hacking them to death with machetes. I threw my arms around this guy's neck. I'm, I'm bawling. I'm, I'm crying. And I remember thinking, because all I could see was my family, my wife, my kids. God, I couldn't do it. That's what I said. God, I couldn't do it. And he spoke to me. He said, not in your strength, son, but in my strength, all things are possible. I watched that young man walk out of that church with a totally different countenance, and I marveled at my God. So I want to ask you today, where are you? Have you ever given your life to Christ? If you haven't, why not? If you're a non-believer, then I challenge you. Don't, don't take my word for it. Matter of fact, God says that in the Bible. He says, when you search for me and you search for me with all your heart, you'll find me. And I can line you up a number of guys that were very intelligent non-believers. And they tried everything they could to disprove it only to become believers. If you haven't given your life to the Lord, today is the day of the Lord. And Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock. If you'll come in, if you'll open the door, I'll come in and I'll sup with you. Maybe you're here today and through my message this morning that you found out that even though you might have gotten off to a good start, somehow you've let the cares of the world and the, the busyness of your life and maybe the culture around us today choke out what you once had. Maybe it's become a little bit too much of a routine and maybe today's the day and there's a lot of reasons. I can tell you as a minister, as a minister, there are times in my life when I get so busy doing the work I'm doing and trying to attend to it, that it interferes or I allow it to interfere in my personal relationship with God. And there are times when God has to, and he has his ways of doing it, remind me, hey, Ted, you know what? If you spend a little more time with this, with me, I can make this a lot easier. So I think there's times when all of us need to make that recommitment. But how about you today? Maybe today's the day where you drive that stake in the ground. Unless David said, restore in me this day, Lord, an upright spirit. Or maybe today you need to seek forgiveness of a repetitive sin. You know, that sin that you've committed, that sin. That one that goes away for a week or a month and then it rears its ugly head and it's back. Or maybe even worse, it's there every day. Drugs, alcohol, addiction, pornography. Pornography is one of the biggest drugs of choice in the church. True. I've I've had it said that way. A lot of churches do these large gatherings across the country and they gather at hotels. And I can't remember what year it was, but they basically said that of all the conferences held at these hotels, that the conferences were the more, the most pornographic movies were rented were Christian conferences. That's pretty sad, isn't it? The devil knows how to turn your, your knob. He knows your weakness. We got to be ready all the time. So maybe today you not only seek forgiveness, but say, Lord, deliver me from the bondage of this in my life. 
and ask him to cross your path with those who can help you if you need the help. Or maybe like so many men that I speak to, there's men out here that are suffering from the father wound. You didn't have a good, you didn't have the, that what I had, I realized how fortunate I was to have what I had. There's a lot of guys I speak to that have never known their dads or they've never had a good relationship or no relationship. But if that's you, you can't hang on to that anger and bitterness too. You got to let it go. And I would say that you, you, there are men maybe in this room on the other side of that. Maybe today through what I've said to you, you realize you need to be a better dad. That's what I challenged the men to do yesterday at the big men's conference. But I know this, whatever you need is in the house and his name is Jesus. So with that said, would you all bow your heads with me and close your eyes? And I'm going to pray a prayer. I don't ask that you pray what I'm praying. I just ask that you speak to the Lord from your heart today. And even more importantly than that, listen to his response to you. In obedience, respond. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord Jesus, I I come to you now, Lord, and I, I confess to you that I'm a sinner. Lord, I realize today that in and of my own strength and power, well, the truth is, Lord, I realize today that I'm powerless. Today, Lord, I realize that everything I would ever need in life, the answer to every question, the answer to every problem can be found in one place, and that one place is you, Jesus. So today, Lord, I ask you to search my heart. Reveal to me any unconfessed sin in my life that I might confess it now. And I confess my sin today, Lord, and I ask you from the bottom of my heart to forgive me and that you would come into my life today, not only as Savior, but Lord. And Lord, I come today to say, forgive me, Lord, for allowing the busyness of my life and the cares of the world and the culture around me. Forgive me, Lord, for allowing those things to choke out what I had with you. Today, Lord, I want to renew my relationship. I want to pledge to you that from this day going forward, there will be no no other relationship more important to me than ours. Because as the Bible says, apart from you, I can do nothing. So forgive me, Lord, and restore me today. Lord, I pray and I ask you to not only forgive me today, but Lord, deliver me from the bondage of this particular sin in my life. I'm tired and I'm weary. And I feel like I've, I've come to you so many times and asked forgiveness that you don't want to hear it anymore. So today, Lord, help me to do whatever I must do to deliver, to, that you would help me deliver myself from this bondage. And Lord, I especially lift up those who carry, or are carrying around bitterness and anger. And just as you spoke to my heart that day in the Bronx, help those who are carrying anger and bitterness to let it go and to lean on your strength, not their own. Finally, Lord Jesus, I say thank you. Thank you for answering every prayer, cry, and plea in this room. Thank you for your promised forgiveness. Thank you for restoration, for restoration. But most of all, Lord, thank you for loving all of us enough to take our place on the cross and die for our sin. And we pray this prayer in your precious matchless name, the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Now, folks, this is just something I do. Heads bowed, eyes closed with nobody looking around. I think the choir is going to play a song as I do this. But I'm going to ask you these three questions. Again, eyes closed, heads bowed. This is just between you and me. So the first question would be this. If you happen to be here today and you have never given your life to Christ, but today for the very first time, you said, yes, I know I need Jesus. If that's you today and you've made a first time decision, 
with eyes closed and heads bowed, you simply raise your hand high in the air where I can see it and I can acknowledge that? Are there any first-time believers in the room? All right, second question. If you prayed with me just now, and for whatever reason, and there are a number of them, you would say, yes, Dad, I need to rededicate my purpose to the relationship. Did it become number one absolutely in my life? If that's your prayer today, would you, with eyes closed and heads bowed, raise your hand so I can acknowledge that decision? God bless you, bless you. God bless you, thank you. God bless you. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Third question, two parts. If you're here today and and, uh, you're confessing a sin, a repetitive sin, and you've prayed, Lord, I I need not only forgiveness, but I need to be set free from its bondage. If that's your prayer, again, with eyes closed and heads bowed, nobody looking around, would you raise your hand so I could acknowledge those decisions? God bless you, several hands. Thank you. Thank you. Last part of that question, if some, for some reason something horrible has happened in your life and you've hung on to it, you've refused to forgive, but today through this message, God has laid it on your heart that you need to let it go and that in his strength, you can let it go. If that's your prayer today, eyes closed, heads bowed, would you raise your hand for me? God bless you, bless you. God bless you, God bless you, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Okay, folks, look up here. Well, God's working in here today, that's for sure. I shared with you about going to uh, Chicago for a reason. It was a major moment in my life because God simply wanted to know one thing, if I was willing to humble myself. The beginning of all true repentance is humility. And pride and, and, and arrogance had controlled my life for 20 years. He wanted to know if I'd go forward. So I'm going to challenge you the same way. If you prayed today with me and you raised your hand for any reason, then I want to challenge you to come forward and stand at the platform today because I want to pray with you again. So if you prayed and raised your hand, would you please come forward? That takes a little courage. That's awesome. As they're coming forward, I'll share a story with you that a pastor shared with me about a young man who stood up in his congregation and said, Pastor, I believe the gospel, and, but I'm not going to come up there today and be a hypocrite. He said, what do you mean? He says, well, I'm a young man. I got a lot of living to do. There's some things that I want to experience that God won't like, basically. The pastor said this to him. He says, what you're saying is you're going to deliberately, knowingly sin. That's called testing God or tempting Christ. And there's nothing more dangerous than you can do because you're not guaranteed another opportunity. This is a true story. And I know several like it. This young man left the church, got in his car with a convertible with the top down. And not more than 10 blocks from that church, as he crossed an intersection in Phoenix, Arizona, a car ran the light and jumped a curb when airborne and took his head off. Too late. I always say that in case there's somebody sitting out there and your heart's beating fast and something inside of you is saying, go. That something is the Holy Spirit. Please don't put off another moment what you know you need right now. You may have no other opportunity. So is there anybody else that needs to come for any reason? You say, well, it's just a small thing. Small things become big things if we don't address them. Anybody? God bless you. God bless you. Give him a hand. That takes courage. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, folks, God bless all of you for whatever reason you've come forward. What I'd like to do now as a body of believers is lift up everybody that's come forward today. So would you all stand with me? We're going we're gonna to pray for, the, for everybody that's come forward today. But I'll say this before we pray. If you need counseling and private prayer, 
we're going to be here to do that as well. But this is, this is a, a group prayer. Father God, we come once more to the throne of grace. And Lord, you said that wherever two or more of us would come together in agreement, asking anything as it pertained to the will of the Father, that you would hear our prayer, that you would grant our request. So Lord, we come today and we lift up these who, in obedience to your voice in their life today, have come forward. And Lord, your word also told us that you know us so intimately, that you know our need before we ask, that you know every hair on our head. So Father, we just ask that you would work in each life, standing at this altar as only you can, that you would touch them as only you can, that you would heal them as only you can. And Lord, that you would let them know and understand that unconditionally, not only is their sin forgiven, but your word says and declares forgotten, never to be remembered again, as far as east is from the west. And Lord, I pray for all of them that you would cross their paths with those who can help them walk this journey for whatever their, whatever their reason is, Lord, that you would bring the help to them that only you can bring. And Lord, I pray that all of us as a body of believers leave this church today. And I always pray this, Lord, that you would continue to open our spiritual eyes to see the path you have set before each of us, that you would open our ears to hear clearly your voice above, the, above a dark dying world. And Lord, that we might truly be the salt and light you've called us, each of us to be. And once again, Lord, we thank you for all of this. All of the decisions made today, all of the forgiveness today was not one today, but 2,000 years ago at the cross. All praise, honor, and glory are yours and yours alone. And we give that to you now. We thank you again in the powerful name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen and amen. Amen.